so I want to ask you about NASA's announcement that it is launching a program looking at unidentified aerial phenomena. This is the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Study. And I've got to ask you, Katie, two questions. Number one, have you ever seen something which is unidentified? And secondly, do you really think NASA should be getting into UFOs? <laughs> well, who better? Right. right, I guess <laughs> is it you know that that little line in the mission? Yes, but you know there's footage that exists from different kinds of cameras. Well, what is that? Which is, I mean, the curious spirit that we want to encourage right. in everyone. And having said that, your original question: Have I seen anything on my very first mission? You know, after like a day, we called up Mission Control. We go, so there's this thing, <laughs> right? And it's it's like always there, kind of always behind us, and and we're just. We're not suggesting, we're just wondering. Mm -hmm. And they go, oh, yeah, no, no, no. That's just like that, you know, leftover booster from something that launched okay, just so a they, few days ago. Okay, so they knew the answer, but you didn't. Yeah, and they didn't think we'd like to know, like, hello, <laughs> you know, knock, 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 you know. <laughs> this is what interests me about this, because this isn't looking for aliens sort of buzzing the earth. It's about phenomena that people see and record and we have no explanation for. So this is actually good science. It's asking, what can we find out? But for the record, um, I did not see aliens. I'm Katie Coleman. I'm Andrew Maynard. Welcome to Mission Interplanetary. On today's show, we are asking, what are we learning from the James Webb Space Telescope? And as it turns out, we're learning a ton. It's only been out there, hasn't it, a few months, and yet it's already revolutionizing what we're discovering about the universe. You just don't even want to miss a day. Right, right. But it's the fact that these people speak data, and they are being sprayed by this incredible firehose of data, which is like a language that means something to them. You know, this is a good time to think about being an astrophysics geek. I think. Fantastic interview. Hey, it is time for the weekly obsessions, Andrew. Yes. I don't think I've mentioned this before, but one of my favorite science fiction authors is the, the Scottish author Ian M. Banks. And I, I love him because he's a deeply flawed author. He has an amazing imagination. And he's a very poetic writer. But there's, there's one of his books, which I've actually been going back to over the last few days, which I love. It's called The Algebraist. And I, I love it for so many reasons. One is he gets the, the physics so right of, of awesome interstellar travel. But he also has an imagination when it comes to thinking about humans and artificial intelligence that is just mind-blowing. But the bit that I love about this book is that there is one obscure passage in it about a water moon. So, so this is a passage where there's this text that describes this water moon just a few thousand kilometers across that's totally made up of water. And it talks about how something amazing happens in the center of it, that all of a sudden you get to the center of this moon and you feel weightlessness. And I, I mentioned this because this passage, even though it seems utterly obscure, is the key to unlocking the whole story around this book, which is an amazing, mind-blowing story. So I've been immersing myself again in Ian M. Banks's Algebraist this last week. Highly, highly recommended. I love to see the world through your eyes. And, <laughs> I mean, I always, I learn things. I, you know, it brings a bit of whimsy off. to the day. Oh, it's not whimsy. It's like a whole other, it's like, oh, have you been to this place? And then you take us there, which I really, really appreciate. And especially in this case, it actually coincides with what I've been wistfully thinking about microgravity and floating oh. around and why it is that that 
having a different gravity seems to define that we've gone to a different place. Like, right. are people going to be disappointed if we get to Mars and and or, well, I mean, we know Mars, we know the, the gravity there. But let's say you know, with JWST, we discover an exoplanet where it's got a habitable atmosphere. We get there mm-hmm. and it's one gravity, just like Earth. Right. Are people going to be like, well? I mean, I that thought I'd like actually, go to a real place, like real right, outer space, right? right? Is, so I've never thought of that before because, of course, if you watch something like Star Trek, it always seems to be sort of Earth gravity wherever they go. And it's never struck me that maybe that's actually not that interesting. And I know from talking to you that you just love the microgravity on the International Space Station. That seems to be one of those things that defines the experience. Maybe you're right. Maybe we will be hungering after these different gravity worlds. But it's interesting to me. I mean, there's there's a practicality. It would be very, very practical for the scientists. I mean, for the people who take care of our health. I mean, there's all sorts of questions, you know, with a different gravity. You know, we understand mm-hmm. more about being completely pretty much weightless up in the mm-hmm. space station. But on the moon, what will it be like? What will it mean in a health way on the, on right. Mars? And so it's very practical. It's gonna They're going to go, okay, don't have to worry about that for people surviving if it's yep. 1G. We should get on with this week's interview, which was just I, amazing. I love this one. 2022 has been a truly remarkable year for space exploration. And there's so many amazing new missions, launches, accomplishments, and it is actually hard to keep track. But of course, one of the most exciting developments was the deployment of the James Webb Space Telescope, the JWST, because it's the largest and most powerful telescope ever sent to space. So much new data, those jaw-dropping first images, and, you know, I I'll say all the subsequent ones, but you know, literally every day there's another thing to learn about. I, I know. I, 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 so I should say to the audience, if you haven't looked at any of the images from the JWST, what have you been doing? You should actually stop right now and go and look at them, but then make sure you come back to the rest of this episode. The JWST has opened up a whole new era in astronomy, enabling scientists to see much further and more clearly than ever before. But what are we learning from the JWST and what are we seeking to find out? So to get answers, we went to the source. Amber Strawn is an astrophysicist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. She's the Associate Director of the Astrophysics Science Division and the Deputy Project Scientist for the JWST Science Communications. In addition to being a brilliant scientist, she's also an accomplished science communicator. She regularly appears on all sorts of cool, like major live events and TV and documentaries. And I just personally, you know, want to thank her really because you know, this is the way we learn is when somebody's a good storyteller and they share with us. I agree. I should also say that she is an ASU graduate, which makes her even more awesome. Amber Strawn, welcome to Mission Interplanetary. Thank you. It's great to be here. So can we start by having you tell me, like, you know, what are the things that we couldn't do that motivated us to build and launch this telescope? Well, astronomy, I mean, 
<laughs> it's such a big field, such a big, you know, field of science. And there has been so much that we have been able to learn about the universe, particularly since the advent of telescopes. The Hubble Space Telescope, of course, has revolutionized astronomy in fundamental ways. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, Hubble's been up there for over three decades and it's still going strong. It's still awesome. We still love Hubble. But there have been a lot of ways that we've pushed Hubble to its limits. And so JWST was specifically designed to answer some of the biggest questions in astronomy today that Hubble just couldn't quite get to. So what makes it different, though? I Sort of what do you do with the next generation space telescope? Yeah, it is It is very different from Hubble in, in a few key ways. The first big difference between Hubble and JWST is really just the size. So Hubble's mirror is 2.4 meters in diameter. The JWST mirror is six meters in diameter. And so that gives an, an overall collecting area about six or seven times. And so, of course, that's really important for a telescope. Just the fact that this telescope is so much bigger makes it much more powerful. It also sees a different type of light. Mm -hmm. So Hubble um, you know, primarily sees the universe in visible light, optical light that your eyes see. JWST was specifically designed to see infrared light, light that's a little bit more red than your eyes can see. And that was exclusively driven by the science we wanted to do with it. So what's so important about that shift away from human eyes or the human spectrum to something else? Yeah, I mean, as humans, we're, you know, we've evolved to see this, this part of light that falls in the optical range. It's, of course, just a teeny tiny sliver of all of the electromagnetic radiation that we're getting from the universe all the time, right? It's this teeny slice. And the universe is constantly sending us information in other wavelengths of light. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've been building telescopes for decades that look at other parts of the spectrum, you know, from x-rays all the way out to radio waves. And it just so happens that some of the key things we wanted to find out about the universe demand that we look at the universe in infrared light. And so that's the reason we built the telescope the way that we did. And in fact, even before Hubble was launched, <laughs> you know, the very, very early days of Hubble, astronomers were already thinking about sort of what would be the next big telescope. We already thought that most likely to see the most distant galaxies in the universe we would need an infrared telescope. The, the reason that we needed an infrared telescope to see these distant galaxies, and specifically, we're looking here for the very first epoch of galaxies that were born after the Big Bang. So we're talking about looking back in time over 13 and a half billion years. So right back to the formation of the first galaxies. And those galaxies are so far away that the light that they emitted when they were born, the ultraviolet light from these baby stars, that light's been traveling through the universe all this time, and the universe is expanding. And so that expansion of the universe is literally, you know, stretching out the wavelengths of light, making them longer, which is redder. And, and so just to be clear, so I, this is what we mean by redshift, this stretching of the wavelength. Just sort of encapsulate that for us so we know what we're talking about. It's not just that both of these terms have got red in them, but it's there's more physics there. Yeah, a little more physics there. Sure. So um, essentially, you know, you think of, of, of light and each type of light that we receive has a certain wavelength. Uh, so the distance between the crest 
uh, mm-hmm. of the waves of the light. And the longer those crests are, the more distance between the crests, that light is redder. And of course, at some point, our eyes cut off the red that we can see, but there's all this other radiation out there uh, that has longer wavelengths. Right. And yes, the universe, since it's expanding, as light travels through it, the light is, is, is literally stretched and longer wavelengths mean redder light. So what does, what do these new capabilities, what, what kinds of big questions will they allow us to ask? Well, yeah, as I said, the very key goal of seeing the birth of galaxies, the very first galaxies to be born after the Big Bang, I mean, that's huge, right? It's it's the beginning of everything as we know it, because, of course, we look around today, we see this universe full of galaxies, but we have never been able to see the first epoch of galaxies that were born back in that very, very distant part of the universe, the early, early universe. That was the primary driver of the telescope decades ago. Mm-hmm. We wanted to find the first galaxy, so we needed to build a telescope this way. But it just so happens that having a huge, powerful infrared telescope in space opens up all these other places where we can discover things about the universe. And one of the things I'm most excited about, I study galaxies. So I have a little bit of a galaxy black hole bias, just to put it all out there. (laughs) But I think one of the most awesome areas of science this telescope is going to deliver is in the field of exoplanets. And it just so happens that a lot of the really interesting chemical signatures that we want to learn about in an exoplanet's atmosphere falls in the infrared part of the spectrum. So things like water vapor and methane and carbon dioxide, all of these incredible elements that could, you know, potentially signal a habitable surface. And we get that in the infrared. So so this is really important because now we're not just talking about taking images, but we're talking about collecting data and unpacking those data. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you take this infrared signal and how you decode it to get useful information about stars and planets and I guess galaxies as well. When people think about a telescope, they think about images, which is fine because the images are beautiful and there's a lot we can learn from the images. But the real good stuff is in the spectroscopy. And essentially what spectroscopy is, is splitting light up into its constituent wavelengths. So seeing the very, very detailed parts of light. And what this allows us to do is see things like emission lines or absorption lines. So these are the sort of telltale fingerprints of of the chemical and molecular components of the objects that we're looking at. And what tells you that this is so important is that 70% of the first year of observations on this telescope are spectroscopy. Right. So just just to clarify that, because I, I this always blows me away, and I you're talking my language here because a lot of my life as a researcher has been looking at different types of spectra. Um, but it's this fact that in that signal, you've got encoded these signatures, as you say, for the types of molecules and structures that tell us something really quite profound about, am I right to say, even individual planets that are outside our solar system? 
Absolutely. Yeah. It's incredible that we're even able to do this. It blows my mind. It, it's it's almost like, and you go back to sort of Star Trek, you know, when sort of in Star Trek, they they reach a new planet and they circle it and they sort of look at all these, these data from the planet and they say, yes, this has got a habitable atmosphere. We can do that, except we can do it from here when the planet is somewhere else in the universe. Yeah, looking at planets, you know, very far away, still, of course, within our Milky Way, so right. relatively but, close. And, and when but... we say how, <laughs> how far, how far are we talking? Yeah, yeah, many tens of light years. And, you know, essentially what we're doing is is the telescope stares at a star, waits for a planet to pass in front of the star, and that looks at the starlight as it filters through the atmosphere. And hmm. from that, it can tell what chemicals are in that atmosphere. It's incredible that we're able to do it. It's so hard for the exoplanets particularly right. because the stars are so bright and the planets are tiny and the atmospheres are just barely there. And it takes really incredible technology to do it. But I think what we learn about exoplanets from this telescope is going to be groundbreaking. So, so one aspect of that is the resolution. So I'm going back to the Hubble and remember the kerfuffle when Hubble went up where uh, the resolution wasn't quite what it was supposed to be. Um, so with James Webb, I'm assuming that the, the, the resolution of this blows Hubble out of the water. But sort of how fine a resolution do you need? Do you actually, I mean, if you look at the images from the JWST, can you actually see an exoplanet in front of a star or is that just too small? You're just looking at the signatures because you know it's there. Yeah, so when we're talking about looking at the chemicals in exoplanet atmospheres, uh, we're just looking at the signal here. So we can't see that yet mm -hmm. in detail. We can't see a transiting planet. We are able to use a technique called coronography to block out the light from the parent star and see the planets that are orbiting it. So now we're thinking mm. about more like a face-on uh, orientation. And so if you block out the light from that parent star, we are able to see the individual planets, but they're tiny little dots still. <laughs> In order to like legitimately image an exoplanet like that, we're going to need the next generation of huge telescopes <laughs> right. in space, which we're already working on. So it's great. Well, I, I was hearing that there, there's just such an enormous amount of data. And I wondered, Amber, if what's it what's it like in the astrophysics community? And are they are they recruiting? <laughs> are you looking for a job, Katie? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. It, it it has been these first few months of, of having this telescope and, and routine operations has been just incredible because, yeah, there is a flood of data. And, you know, one of the great things about the first five months of, of the telescope operations is we have a really extensive program where a bunch of different observations are taken that the data is public immediately. And this hmm. was by design. Um, and so, so a lot of this data is, you know, as soon as it's taken and, you know, processed, it's put on the archive and anyone in the world can go download it and start doing science on it. It really is like a whole new part of the universe has been opened up for us to see. You know, these things that have always been out there that we've never been able to see before. And it, it is definitely a new window into the universe. So we've been talking about exoplanets, but you said you study galaxies. so And, and black holes. And black holes. So is anything happening in the galaxy and black hole arena with JWST? Or is our exoplanets just sucking up all the fun at the moment? <laughs> 
Good question. <laughs> there's just, there's so much happening so quickly, which is a lot of fun. But essentially, this telescope was built to find the first galaxies. And that's, you know, that's a part of space we've never seen before. It's how galaxies got started. Um, and even though I, I don't study, you know, those first galaxies, that area of study really does set up the rest of galaxy evolution, which is what I'm interested in. So for me, some of the most exciting things that have come out in these first few months, um, we are starting to see them, you know, we're right. starting to see these very, very early galaxies, uh, which is incredible. And, you know, it's exactly what the telescope was designed to do. And here we are, we have the data, we're, we're starting to do it. Now, some interesting things <laughs> that have happened so far, we are seeing right now, more bright early galaxies than we expected. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so theory gives us a baseline of what we think the very early universe was like, but again, we've never seen it, and now we're starting to see it. And and what we're starting to see so far, early data, is that there seems to be more of these very bright massive big galaxies in the early universe than theory has predicted. So this is interesting. It's a bit of a conundrum and it's what happens, right, in science because now we're going to have to revise our theory. I was going to say that I but that's the exciting bit about science when something doesn't fit the model, that's when scientists get really enthusiastic about sort of what don't we know that we should know. Exactly. Yeah. This is all still very early data. You know, even a lot of the very early papers that were posted online, we're having to go back and say, hmm, wait a second, maybe we didn't understand the data quite as well mm -hmm. as we should have. So it's, there's a little bit of like churn uh, yeah. with these first few months, because we're still learning how to use this incredible, powerful telescope, and still working with the instrument calibrations and things like that on the technical side. Yeah, we're still learning how to use the telescope. But the early, the early sort of hints of, of what we're starting to learn about the early universes is super interesting. But also what you're saying suggests that there's actually quite a lot that we don't know about the universe. I mean, how big is that sort of knowledge hole, that, that black hole of everything that we would like to know <laughs> but we don't know? Yeah, it is huge. I mean, you know, I'm like I, I said, I'm interested in how how galaxies change over time. So looking at, at, you know, galaxies over the course of the history of the universe and looking at things we can understand about galaxies, like how fast they form their stars, how their black holes grow how they interact, how galaxies interact over time. So those are sort of the questions I'm interested in. Um, and wow, there's so much about that process that we don't understand. So one of the big mysteries that we have in this overall process of galaxy evolution is how black holes got so big. So we know that basically every massive galaxy in the nearby local universe has a giant black hole at its center, just mm -hmm. like our Milky Way. We have this gigantic black hole at the center of the Milky Way. And our current models and theories and even observations don't tell us how black holes got so big and particularly how they got so big so fast because we see really big ones in the early universe too. Right. And so, you know, black holes are very fundamental to how galaxies change. And that's a big, big piece of information that we don't quite understand. But then on the bigger scale, if you really want to, you know. Sorry, you go bigger than this. <laughs> bigger than black holes. So if you really want to blow your listeners' minds, I mean, everything that we see in the universe, the trillions of galaxies 
that are out there, the trillions of stars, everything, all of that stuff still only makes up about 5% of the universe. (laughs) Everything else is dark matter and dark energy. Okay. Which, uh, what does that mean? We have no idea. That's (laughs) (laughs) That's the fun part. And that's one of the fun parts about being a scientist is that we, we have learned so much every time we we build a new technology like this telescope, our understanding just increases exponentially, which is great, but there's still so much we don't know. We literally don't know what 95% of the universe is made of. And we're working every day to try to figure that stuff so out. So I've, I've got to ask you a really metaphysical question. What excites you more, the stuff you do know or the stuff you don't yet know? Absolutely, it's the stuff we don't know. Right? Because it's a huge mystery. What is dark energy? I mean, this discovery that the universe is accelerating in mm-hmm. its expansion, that's you know what we call dark energy. Astronomers have this annoying habit of when we don't know what something is, we label it dark. Um, <laughs> and th- this whole discovery of dark energy also was a huge surprise. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody expected it. We've we've known for a while that the universe was expanding. So we figured it was either expanding at a sort of constant rate, so it would just keep, you know, keep on going, or it might slow down and then eventually crunch back into mm-hmm. a big crunch, right? Those were sort of what we expected. And then we started looking at the data and we found out that it wasn't either of those things, that it's actually speeding up more and more all the right. time. And that's an incredible paradigm shifting discovery. And we have no idea what's causing it. So time out. How do you know that we only know 5%? (laughs) Yeah. So, so, um, I'm just hopeful. I'm hopeful that you're wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So we, we have these sort of overall cosmological models of the overall mass energy content of the universe. And so by looking at different components of the universe, we can sort of put assignments of percentage to each of these different things. So we have normal matter, which makes up everything we see, dark matter, which behaves like normal matter, but we don't know what it is. We can't see it. It doesn't interact with electromagnetic radiation. And then we have this dark energy component. So it's these sort of three different mass energy components of the universe. And that's where we stand right now. We have a good understanding of that 5%. We're learning more about the the dark matter component, the other 20-ish percent. And dark energy is still, we still have a lot to learn about it. Will the JWST actually help us better understand dark energy and dark matter? Or is that for the next generation of telescope? JWST will definitely help us understand dark matter better. And that's because dark matter, you can sort of think of it as like the scaffolding of the universe. Like it's mm-hmm. the the sort of structure on which normal matter sits. Galaxies, kind of where how galaxies hold, sit hold it, hold it. Go, go back a second. So I, th- this is mind-blowing. So you're saying there's some sort of structure. It's almost like a sort of three-dimensional, multi-dimensional web that we can't see that everything else is sort of pinned in place by. Yep, that's absolutely right. That's a that's wow. a good description. So yep. if we if we look at, you know, how galaxies are distributed in space, we see that they for, sort of form this cosmic web. It's, mm-hmm. it's it is almost like it's sitting on a web structure. Hmm. And yes, dark matter is that backbone that galaxies sit on. And dark matter must be really cr- 
critical to how galaxies evolve and change and behave. And so by studying that process of how galaxies evolve Mm. and change and behave, we're able to deduce more about the nature of the underlying dark matter. Now, dark energy, we can do a little bit with with JWST to, to further the studies of dark energy like we have with Hubble. But really what we need to get more of an understanding of dark energy is another space telescope, which we're building right now. The Nancy Grace Roman uh, Space Telescope will launch uh, several years. I believe the launch date's 2027, so it's actually not that far away. And this telescope is specifically designed to help us learn more about the nature of dark energy. So what will this one do? I mean, is it just bigger? Is it a different part of the spectrum? So the Roman Telescope is different in that it sees a wide view of the universe. Hubble and JWST both sort of peer very deeply into a small part of the universe. So, you know, the pictures that you see coming back from JWST are like teeny, teeny, tiny uh, little parts of the sky. Mm-hmm. You know, you may have heard the NASA administrator say that that first image that we released was like holding a grain of sand at arm's length. So that's that's how big these images are. The Roman telescope allows us to see a field of view that is much, much, much bigger, but less deep, if that makes sense. So, you know, it's sort of like a telephoto lens versus, you know, your normal ordinary camera. Okay, we're finally going to get our wide angle lens. Yes. In space. <laughs> Yes, in space, in just a few years. And that that just allows us to to study galaxies in a different way. Mm. And again, the galaxies, uh, the dark energy leaves their imprints on normal matter. And so by studying huge samples of galaxies in specific ways, we'll be able to learn more about the nature of dark energy. Hey, Amber, a mutual friend of ours, Katie Mack, she oh, and I yeah. were chatting, and and she said, "Ask her about dark matter annihilation and galaxy <laughs> mergers." So, can we have a little of that before we end? <laughs> uh, oh my goodness! Because um, Katie does see. like simulation stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So she, yeah, she does more of the theory stuff. Oh my goodness! I haven't even thought. I would have to think hard about that. But uh, so she probably recommended that <laughs> because I study galaxy mergers, so I'm interested in what happens to galaxies when they collide. Um, And in particular, I study how that affects the galaxy's star formation rate, how the star formation process changes with that, and also how that process of galaxy mergers feeds black holes. But you see now, I'm saying all these words, stars, black holes, I mean, black holes are a completely different category, but all of this stuff that we're able to study is normal matter. And so, so I would have to think hard about dark matter annihilation in a galaxy merger. Interesting. <laughs> that sounds like a follow-up podcast. <laughs> I think it does. So. And actually, what I'm hearing is that we've got all these different aspects of astrophysics, and yet when you're trying to answer questions, you're going to have to join together with folks who study completely different things. Absolutely, hundred percent agree. I mean, and it's yeah, especially theory theorists and observers have always, you know, <laughs> worked together, and that's super important. Amber, this has just been not only fantastic, but mind-blowing. It always is, I find, when I'm speaking to people that deal with things that are just so massive and so profound. Uh, Thank you so much. This has been amazing. You're welcome. This has been so much fun. On Mission Interplanetary, we can't show you pictures of space, 
but we can share what space sounds like. This is Sounds of Space. At the beginning of that, I've got to tell you, there used to be this British TV program back in the oh, 70s called The Clangers, with these these little sort of piggy mouse type sort of creatures living on this little moon, and they, they communicated by whistling to each other, and they're all sorts of weird sounds, and this is exactly the sort of sound space you would find on The Clangers moon. So I'm going to go for this. I know it's wrong, but I am going to stick to The Clangers moon. <laughs> Uh, there will be no point for you on episode six. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> so what this was <laughs> is it's so this is the sound of an exoplanet's atmosphere. Ooh. I mean, so as, as an exoplanet moves in front of a star, it's mm-hmm. a star. The light from that star passes through the planet's atmosphere, yep. and that light carries information. So by separating the light into its different wavelengths. Like a prism separates light into a rainbow, the mm-hmm. scientists can discern the chemical composition of that atmosphere. Oh, I love this. In June of 2022, the JWST measured light filtering through the atmosphere of an exoplanet known as WASP 96b. WASP 96b. Hot... Exactly. <laughs> and so it's, it, I mean, that, so that's a hot gas giant. It's more than 1,100 light years from Earth. And the resulting transmission spectrum, so this is what JWST saw, revealed the presence of water mm-hmm. in that planet's atmosphere. So what you heard was this transmission spectrum translated into sound. And the sonification scans the spectrum from left to right, and each ping represents a data point on the spectrum. And the lower the pitch, the lower the frequency of light. So the volume indicates the amount of light that was detected at each data point. And you also hear four water droplet sounds. Do you remember those? <laughs> kind of bing, bing, right? So, so those, were, those were added, were they? Because I was going to say, this is incredible that it sounds like water. Well, and so basically they assign those cool, like, you know, plinking water oh, sounds. Oh, I see. So, so this is still with the data, but, but they're actually assigning different types of sound to Absolutely. the data. Absolutely. This I mean, is so- too cool. These indicate the location of water signatures. I mean, there are points on the spectrum that indicate the presence of water in the atmosphere. And this amazing sonification was brought to you by our friends at System Mm -hmm. Sounds who do, they think in really mysterious, cool ways, and we're glad they like to think with us. That was the sound of an exoplanet's atmosphere. No, Let's. this is this is my sort of sound. So I, this ties everything together. It ties spectroscopy together. It ties data together. It ties exoplanets and JWST together. And isn't it mind blowing that we can get this signal from this planet? It is just just mind boggling distances away. But we can actually use that signal to tell what's in the atmosphere of that planet. And then we can create this incredibly cool soundscape from that. I just, my mind is blown. Let's listen to that again.
that's it for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Please, if you haven't already done so, go subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. We read all of them and it really helps us. Write to us for, on our website. That's missioninterplanetary.com. We would love to hear from you. Follow us on Twitter at II underscore ASU. And please do recommend us to your friends. That would be really cool of you. The executive producer of Mission Interplanetary is Lance Garavi. Our sound designer and engineer is Stephen Christensen. Our intern is Mason Miller. And our music was composed by Mario Iniguez. Mission Interplanetary is a production of Arizona State University's Interplanetary Initiative. We'll be back next week asking the big questions about space exploration. The future is interplanetary. We'll see you there.